Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. My guest today has quite the resume. Uh, he's worked on prestigious game franchises as Metroid, Donkey Kong, uh, Halo, and a lot more. Uh, he's currently creative director at Discord. I'd like to welcome Kynan Pearson. How you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time out. Um, awesome backdrop, I must say. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm jealous. <laughs> uh, so the first thing I wanted to ask is because you came on to Retro after Metroid Prime, I'm sure you're well aware of how well that game did when you first joined, and you knew some of the guys beforehand, which would have helped with a, a seamless transition, I suppose. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I knew Jason Bear uh, and Mark Puccini and a bunch of the guys that had come from Iguana previously, um, which, you know, a lot of the, or uh, quite a few of the retro staff were previously uh, acclaim Iguana uh, developers. Mm. So that helps in terms of the camaraderie. So you'd already have that when you when you joined, right? Yeah, I'd, uh, so I'd worked closely with Jason Bear, and uh, while he was working on Metroid Prime, you know, we're, we're good friends and everything, so we would talk, and after that game was finished, and he was like, I need help, like, it'd be awesome to have you over at the studio, so I applied and uh, went through the same process that everybody does, of course, and, you know, you have to have con team consensus to, to join a studio, but, um, but yeah, it was, uh, like, I already had a sense of what the studio was capable of and kind of the way things worked hmm. before joining. Right. Now, because you worked on Metro Prime 2 and 3 in terms of the level design, I think uh, you can kind of see your fingerprint on it, right? Because uh, Prime 2, the level design is quite different to Prime and even Prime 3 for that regard. Was that always the intent in the way you designed it? Like in terms of, say, you have the temple area and then this kind of three separate hub areas. So Aegon, Torvus, Sanctuary, and then they kind of all interlink. Was that always the intention of how the actual structure of the level design was? Um, so basically anywhere I go, I'm going to absorb as much information I can from the people that are there and the process that's in place and bring what I can into that process and just, you know, make sure that it's seamlessly incorporated. Um, Jason had a stat or, uh, yeah, Jason had established a lot of um, the kind of design philosophy and sensibilities of how, because he built most of the blue rooms, uh, which is what we called the kind of um, the blockouts of room development in the Prime series. So he had built the metrics and the structure for how blue rooms were functionally worked within uh, Prime 1. When we were moving into Prime 2, there was a lot of talk about basically ways to um, streamline the process, make it feel like it was differentiated from the original game, because you know you wouldn't want to run through a game that felt just fundamentally the same as Prime 1 again. It would just be retreading the same area. Yeah. So there was a lot of discussion in terms of, of how to go about that, but also because we took on the difficult task of doing the dark light um, kind of uh, dynamic, it forced us to think differently about kind of the general layouts and what we wanted to do to make sure, to ensure that um, if you're traveling back and forth between two worlds, you don't want to get lost just in the core layout of the world. 
So just making sure that each of those areas felt distinct, they were connected in ways that were easy for you to comprehend and have spatial awareness of, uh, but the, com the complexity would come from kind of the bouncing back and forth between, you know, uh, light and dark. That sounds incredibly complex because I'd imagine with Metroidvania games specifically is there has to be so much planning beforehand because of how it's usually an interwoven labyrinth, right? You can't really change things on the fly. It would fundamentally break the whole game, wouldn't it? So you'd really have to structure it uh, well uh, beforehand? Yeah, you can never be afraid of just flipping the table and fundamentally redesigning things from scratch. So you can you can basically mitigate against those difficulties by the construction methodology uh, as well as meticulous planning. But then you also have to just react to like how this feels when you're playing it. And one of the things about uh, the way that, that um, we would set up uh, rooms and halls within uh, the Metroid Prime games is that there's docks that connect, um, ultimately meaning that you can take any room in any hall and change its arrangement in the world, but things still have to cohesively fit together uh, in terms of like real world space. So you can't, you know, like if you make a fundamental change where you're like, oh, the only way that we're going to be able to take this part of the world and move it over here and take this part of the world and kind of rearrange it is if we make the art match, but also create these transitions and lay out the rooms so that it still actually fits together uh, mathematically. Wow. Okay. So how long does that process usually take just for like we one room? really fast on... Prime 2. So Prime 2, we would, um, like, we had a process where it, we had seven days to design a singular room. Um, so actually, let me, let me backpedal a little bit. We would lay the world out first in terms of going to Illustrator, figure out how everything is connected and where all the pathing goes. Then we would just do simple boxes uh, with docks and doors so that we had everything connected so that even if you're just running into a giant blank area, you still can run through the pathing and understand how it connects. Then we would replace each asset one by one with the real layout and the intended gameplay. And so on Prime 2, you know, we had seven days to build a room that functioned both light and dark three days to build a hall that functioned light and dark and one day to build pickup rooms, which is like save stations where you pick up, you know, like a little entryway where you'd get like an expansion that wasn't a critical path, kind of like big moment boss ability where, you know, or ability room. Oh, wow. Okay. And would, would that would be would just, uh, just one hub, right? So you'd do that all for Aegon Wastes and then just focus on that and then you'd move to the next area? Is that how it would work? Yeah, I mean, ultimately we would pre-plan a world. Then we'd start working on, um, you know, blocking out all the blue rooms and the gameplay sequences there. Um, we could move on because like we had, uh, like for Prime 2 specifically, Jason Bear, myself, and Michael Chang. Michael Chang went on to be the um, lead level designer on like God of War 2 and on various God of War games. He's incredible. We had a basically a, a killer team on the, on the level design front for Prime 2, which is why we were able to compress the schedule down and actually, because that was a very short timeline game. Um, but we could, we trusted each other to basically get ahead. And so, you know, um, if I'm filling out the rest of Aegon Waste, Michael Chang could be working on Torvus Bog, uh, Jason Bear could be working on uh, Cliff, um, uh, Luminoth, 
not uh sanctuary fortress sanctuary fortress there we go sorry i i still have development names in my head so it's, it's kind of like hard for me to rewire and think of what they shipped as but yeah sanctuary fortress so we would work on multiple areas concurrently uh but for the most part we would try to build them as linearly as we could so we did do you know temple um luminoth temple um fairly early uh and then moved into Sandlands, uh, which was Aegon Wastes, mm. kind of after that, but um, but you know, after a point, once you have enough pieces in play, then you can actually, you know, work on things asynchronously, where it's not not linearly. So, was the the dark world ever intended to be more interconnected? Because you know how there's certain rooms that are just blocked off. Was that just due to um, time constraints or was that an actual fundamental design element? A little bit of both. I think it comes down to tuning and, and playing where it's like this portion of the world isn't working. It actually makes more sense to not include that uh, and create the loop this way. I think for the most part, um, it was a lot more difficult than we thought initially. Like at it, when you're going into it and you're like, oh, we're going to do duplic basically a, a light world and a dark world. Um, so we're going to get some cost savings on art production and planning time that everyone estimates incorrectly. That was not a savings at all. We spent the same amount of effort that we would have if we'd, it's almost harder to build something new over the top of something old than it is to just build the right thing from scratch. Um, so in, in a certain regard, uh, we just had to, you know, fly by the seat of our pants and do the best that we could with the time that we had. And, um, and, Again, it wasn't a studio where we feared like rolling up our sleeves and, and doing just a lot of hard work. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it was more complicated because I would think, I mean, obviously I don't know this stuff, but you take the original room and then what? You just change the textures and contrast, but obviously it doesn't then, work that way. Yeah, <laughs> no, because of, of the routing. You needed to make it so that you could recognize where you were. We had all of the dark world mechanics. We... um in a certain regard, it's 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 weird, but prior to working on Prime Two, we had done the a much more expanded multiplayer that eventually became a lot more distilled and refined when we reduced it down to like four players. Hmm. One of the incredible things about that multiplayer that I still haven't seen done that I kind of wish you know would 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 show up in in other games was when we built the layouts, we would effectively put together a multiplayer map that facilitated gameplay by default. And then we had this idea of modifiers. So you could turn on uh, spider ball tracks, morph ball cannons, uh, hazards, and it would dynamically change. And it was prior to you playing, you wouldn't do this live, but basically it would fundamentally change the layout of the world based on these modifiers that you would put into play. So the idea is like you build a world so that it works both where you're running around on ground level, but if you put lava in or phase on, then all of a sudden you have a hazard down at the bottom and only the things that are poking out of it, the world still has to function within the constraints that we built uh, and the systems and the mechanics based on all these modifiers. And so we could do all kinds of clever things to basically make these maps feel like like dramatically different levels than they were than they were in their default form. And you could mix and match which ones you wanted to turn on. And we had to like, plan how all of the interconnected elements still made the level feel good no matter how many different routes and <laughs> configurations you would put into it and that led into us feeling like we had confidence going into prime 2 to do some really fucking cool stuff oh wow okay 
that's really awesome. So the 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 multiplayer really really helped benefit the actual design elements of the dark world. Ah. Yeah. So in regards to, I find backtracking an interesting topic because it's one of those things that's quite critical to a Metroidvania game. But yet, if you if you lean too much one way, it can, can start to move into the tedious category. So how do you ensure that you kind of get that balance right? It's intuition, playtesting, and having a lot of really smart people looking at the layouts to make sure that it's going to philosophically and theoretically work before you put the work in and find yourself down a, tar- a dark path that you can't you know, dig your way out of. So I'm not entirely sure that it absolutely worked because, you know, generally when I talk to people, um, even personal preference, like Prime 1 stands out as as generally regarded as the favorite. The people that like Prime 2, some people love it and there's nothing else like it. And so it has a little special pocket, but it's a much more uh, niche, hardcore audience that enjoys the kind of threatening atmosphere and everything that, that was uh, incorporated into the Prime 2 mechanics. Um, it is a balancing act, and but Prime Two is is significantly harder. Oh yeah, far harder. <laughs> uh, and so, but and and so that's going to ultimately uh, alienate a certain portion of the audience. But it's also going to provide an experience for a portion that can't get it any other way. Where it's it's you know there's there's a payoff uh, and there's an intensity. So when you overcome obstacles in a game that is significantly more difficult, it's more rewarding. It also makes you almost memorize a little more of the layout intuitively because of the repetition of the difficulty and like the caution. So it's like you really need to focus on your routing. You need to check the map, understand you know uh, your position in within the world, um, and you're also seeing doubles of the rooms so you're getting twice as much reinforcement of familiar uh you know uh, landmarks and stuff so ah so is that part of the reason why say at the end of metro prime 2 you've got like this this massive fetch quest to do was that all planned beforehand or did that come along later in development um it came along later in development it's ultimately you know like every every game you work on is a it's a collaboration so there's a lot of people working on it and there's a lot of uh influences and so working with um spd at the time tanabe-san tabata-san uh otani-san uh and then our group um you know it's just one of those things where through meetings and discussions we came to an agreement on various systems that go into the game and the late game fetch quest felt like it was a a necessary component because it had been incorporated into um, prime one and it felt like a way to you know ultimately pay off when you are fully empowered to go back through the game and feel just you know like all of these areas to see familiar areas that were once kind of really threatening, really difficult to compensate with that you're just blowing through, but also you're exploring and kind of seeing every nook and cranny. It's not for everybody. And I think that like for prime three, uh, it, it felt like it was a better system with, you know, not requiring all of the keys and incorporating them into new areas rather than, um, you know, as much of the backtracking uh, that was in prime. So was was there a specific time within the level design when you were designing it that was the hardest to kind of fine tune and get 
right? Was there a particular period which you spent the most amount of time on? Um, as with like, you know, uh, I hate saying I, because it is a collaborative. Effort. Yeah. Yeah. And so there are periods, you know, it's like in the, in the intro, we had originally had, um, all of the, um, the Luminoth temple hub kind of built and, uh, Mark Puccini was, was playing through. Uh, actually, we were all playing through and we were looking at the, the feedback and the data and, um, he felt that it would be better to incorporate, you know, the little pocket area where you go and you start making the discovery of the Federation troopers, see the introduction of kind of uh, the pre-ing stuff uh, occurring. So that was added late. Um, and, you know, he uh -huh. spearheaded uh, a lot of the initial layout and then we kind of tuned and refined and did everything there. But for the most part, it's kind of like we're all looking at it. And so if anybody is coming up against something where they're like, I think this would fundamentally be better doing this, then we're going to, you know, uh, we're going to discuss it and, and basically test it out just to make sure that I think, you know, there's there's some validity to this. And if it makes the game better and but it's going to create a bunch of work we might as well uh, take a shot at it. Mm, mm. And so if, if that makes sense. So yeah, it's yeah, not, yeah. it's not a, a, you know, like there's never a stage where it's any less difficult. Um, <laughs> it's all difficult, especially with a fast timeline and fast turnaround. Um, but for the most part, the game quality just leaps orders of magnitude towards the end of the process when you have all the pieces to work with and then it's like okay let's refine this and let's actually lean in and make this as good as we can if with the time that we have available to finish right one of the hardest yeah. things i would think with game design is the introductions like the intro levels to games because you know that's the first foray that players have and so you've kind of got to stick the landing in order to uh, secure the fact that they want to keep playing, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so with Prime 2 and Prime 3, uh, how much focus was on that? And did it stay close to the original ideas? Yeah, uh, with Prime 2, like I mentioned, you know, the, the, the tunnels areas were added, um, I wouldn't say late game, but they were added later in the process to basically fill out that guiding you into the experience so you weren't just thrust into the harshness of the dark world as early as you had originally done so. Um, for Prime 3, at that point, it was like, no, there, there was a significant focus on the, the earliest uh, portion because we also had to introduce all of the uh, Gendreda, Gore, Rundus, uh, all of the characters so that you built up a kind of, um, you had some time to gain an understanding of them so it would have more impact uh, when they became bosses later. Mm -hmm. So what was the process going into Prime 3? Because that's fundamentally different from the other games because obviously of the utilization of the ship in different planets. So how did that actually yep. affect the level design aspect? I think for the most part, it it's like each of the games has a very distinct structure that is totally different from each other. Mm. Like Prime 1 is much more explorative, interconnected, isolated. Prime 2, you have the more of the hub and spoke design, uh, but with the dark world, light world transition, Prime 3, you have the ship elements and basically the discrete disconnected areas so it so that all of them feel 
really unique from one another and people have preferences um but for the most part it still it it's something that is discussed early on like what can we do to differentiate this and what can we do to add some spice and give people a new experience so that they don't feel like they're retreading the same ground and um with with prime 2 the the ship was a major focus mm. and j just basically flying from planet to planet was something that the the studio felt really strongly about and wanted to test and wanted to try out and uh there were there were ideas and plans in place to you know make that as interesting as possible I find the level design of Alicia particularly interesting because it's just the way how the op how it all operates, right? Because it's effectively, I mean, obviously each room loads, but there's a couple of times where you're outside and you can see some of the rooms on the far end. Um, how was that in terms of building that? Um, so I wasn't responsible at that point in time, I wasn't responsible for the layout of Elysium. Like we had, uh, that was where actually we had cabal groups of various designers were given control of each of the different worlds to, to uh, plan meticulously. At that point I had pulled back and uh, Pacini had asked me to basically do event planning where he's like, play through everything in the game and figure out all of the moments where we can put highlights and differentiate things and whatever. So my job on, on Elysium, or Alicia, Alicia. Yeah. I know it is Alicia. I know it is Skytown. <laughs> uh, is was um, I basically set up the map to work there because it had to work fundamentally different differently than the rest of the game, and then I would go through and go like, okay, cool. We need uh, this pod. Uh, needs to feel different. So this will be the one where lights are flickering on and off and you get shake and stuff starts to fall down. And then in this area, we're going to put uh, monitors, embed monitors in the walls so that whenever Gore starts beating the hell out of your ship, then you're going to see him take over on the monitors so that you have an understanding of, of what's going on there. Um, and then a lot of work was done just in terms of the mechanics of the the grappling and the lines, which you know effectively eventually went and influenced the... Um, uh, Bioshock Infinite crew. Um, totally, where... totally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it was that was a really difficult one because of the the amount of kind of fake facades that had to be built for how all these things are interconnected and making sure that it looked right and that you you know that the the areas stayed unique and interesting enough and weren't repetitive in terms of of their layout. Um, but there were some technical hurdles just in terms of the amount of just framing of shots that had to be done and all of the work that went into making sure that the, the grapple um, lines felt really good. Yeah, I've, I have read that Alicia was difficult to program for in terms of the engineering aspect to try and keep it at a constant 60 frames per second just because of, well, the sheer size of it, I suppose, in terms of how much has to be loaded. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a showcase. It was known that it was a showcase. Like it was really cool when we were prototyping early on, basically the mock-ups were done and it was like, this is, this is going to be killer. So we were excited. That was, a, a, that was influenced by Star Wars. Was it, was it not? Yeah. I mean, like everything, everyone remixes and borrows. So regardless of whether, you know, some people felt like it was heavily inspired by Sky City Others were looking at, at various other influences and, and people were trying to bring their own unique spin on things. So uh, it can't, it comes up in conversation. Like nobody can work on something and not necessarily see that it could have been uh, influenced or ref like 
um, we're we're all drawing from the same pop culture. We're all drawing from the same inspiration. Of so, course, of yeah. course. So it's all a mesh of ideas. Yeah. So how does that happen when you're in a room with a whole bunch of people and you're all you know putting ideas on the whiteboard or whatever it is that you do? And how do you actually come to a mutual agreement on what to implement? Everybody's bringing different stuff to the table. So I think that kind of, you know, uh, Todd was incredible. Like he was a, a, an awesome art director. Uh, Andrew Jones, great concept artist. Um, and we like everyone's running at it. So a bunch of people would bring their own ideas to the table for various things. And so that could have come from, you know, just uh from concept art or from something that basically uh todd had put together individually or working i don't, I don't remember exactly where the in, the inception of the idea came from but um but it's a lot of different people running at things separately and so there's not one person that could take responsibility for any one component of, of any of the games, just because there's so many people involved in the process. And like, you can like, one of the things that I used to love doing at retro was, um, uh, when we were all in the same office, like I would literally almost daily go into everybody's office and check out what they're doing on their screen. Because if you're seeing everything kind of in, in progress, it can inspire you to do different things. You can bring it back. There's shared knowledge. You can get other people excited about something where it's like, Oh, you know, uh, Tom, go check out this thing that, that Ryan Powell's working on. And so it really brings people together and then you start collaborating more and the ideas just, you know, amplify and, and, and get better. And, um, so yeah, I hope that answers the question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when you uh, started working on Donkey Kong, because uh, you were the designer on that, because that's a very different process than say Metroid, right? Because it's oh, yeah. it's a platformer, um, and I suppose you can change things to a, a certain degree on the fly if you want to amend something. But uh, obviously, one of the things that you incorporated was uh, background elements that kind of influence come into the foreground which yeah. wasn't really done on the original games, but was that always a uh, plan from the start? So uh, every team has champions effectively of, of various things. And so there's sometimes, sometimes you need to establish some limitations in order to pay off and take advantage of them and do things that are unique within those implementations. So when we first got started, um, like there, there was a possibility of, you know, DKCR having splines that went through the levels where the levels weren't built, you know, side view, where it wasn't just, you know, uh, a side scrolling uh, 2.5D style game um, or 2D, 3D. So if those elements had gone into play in terms of like you can run along the path and it changes angles and all that, then it would have been really difficult to do the foreground background play. So. Tom Ivan and I were kind of the, the first um, design leadership on the project. So we're super hardcore about platforming games and also just making sure that, you know, the we were pushing for something very specific. And so the request was and the push was to make sure that we kept, kept it lock, locked on, uh, we'll say Z-plane, uh, just for, for example. And then like we have so many people in the studio that are just super hardcore about 
various games and there are little influences and things that happen over time. And so Nintendo classically has done some killer stuff with various gimmicks like um, uh, Wario on the 3DS had the going into and out of the background. So that was an element that influenced kind of the the idea of firing morph ball cannon or not morph ball cannon, sorry, uh, barrel cannons <laughs> into <laughs> the distance and having the layered gameplay. And we do tests with that. And that was that's kind of there. But then other things are like taking really obscure references. And so, for instance, like, let's say Tidal Wave. So I love uh, Super Ghouls and Ghosts on, on the Super Nintendo. And the very first world of Super Ghouls and Ghosts, there's a section that only happens twice where you're running and a big wave comes up in the background and then it stops and then it comes down in the foreground and covers up part of the level and then removes some pieces. Now, it's only a micro portion of... A really old game that's incredibly hard um, and like uh, the way that we the way that that inspired the idea of having a tidal wave come from the background in 3d and slam into the foreground it no one would ever make that connection that that could have been an, an inspiration or an influence but uh, for the most part it's a little seed of like, man, that is the best part of that game for me. That was like one of the huge things that, that, that stood with me through the test of time of just like it imprinted on me and it was like, okay, cool. So what's a way of basically taking the throne on that? How can we outdo that and make the coolest idea of a wave coming from the background and crashing into the foreground that feels like it's integrated, that feels like it escalates and that there's all of this stuff that you can do with it, but it doesn't, it's, it's not even remotely the same at all as, as to the, the thing that kind of inspired the seed of the idea. And that's all over. Like that's, that's literally in, um, you know, I do that with every game and every project. Just take inspiration of like, hey, we're going to do a door. And it's like, how do we make this the coolest door that you've ever seen in a game? And it's kind of like, okay, so let's look at Labyrinth. And Labyrinth, they have the doors that are the faces that have the like knockers in their mouth and they talk to you. Oh, that's super inspiring. Or in Darksiders, right? They do the giant wall and the wall turn like opens up and it's basically this giant golem and he gets out of your way. That's a door. So there's no excuse to do anything that is just aiming for mediocrity. So when you're starting something, just take seeds of things from your favorite fiction or moments in your life or movies that, you know, they don't actually connect, but you can mix and merge ideas to make new themes that stand out that have the same impact on somebody new playing the game that has never seen those things. Or even if they have, they still wouldn't make that connection. Um, and then incorporate those elements as an inspiring and kind of shocking imprinting way to create something unique with the same amount of effort. So it's like getting way more impact for less effort than, or even the same amount of effort that you would spend to just do something average. Yeah. How did the uh, rocket barrels levels come about? Um, so ultimately the barrels are like one of the most beautiful elements of the original Donkey Kong Country. Like it's one of the strongest elements because 
with just the uh, the barrels alone, that mechanic, you can build an infinite variety of levels from because mm. barrel cannons can do anything. You jump into it, you can fire yourself out, you can fire yourself out uh, with gravity, they can move up and down, they can rotate, they can rotate on a timer, they can count down and blow up. There's a, You can li- literally build an endless variety of levels off of just that concept alone. And so the surprise element of I jump into a barrel and it does something you could, I mean, basically like we could sit here and brainstorm a hundred thousand ideas of different <laughs> things that we could do. And that's, that's, what's unique about it. And so that came from the idea of like, what's something cool that we can do that basically is a new mobility type that allows you to move through the world in an interesting way. And so the whole pumping idea of being able to like apply thrust, let go of thrust gives you something that allows you to have that, that momentum and, and timing change that, you know, we felt like there were some there were some cool uh, mechanics at play to be able to make some unique experiences with. Plus, you can keep the level fully scrolling forward, so you can incorporate elements that come from behind or ahead that are perfectly paced and timed with the player that you couldn't do with the standard player package or the character package where you can move left and right freely. So this locks you into a forward path, kind of like minecarts do, but gave us some new. Um, Basically, you could you could play with the verticality in the level, which was a, a unique twist and change that that was a lot of fun. Well, because of the the way they're structured as well, you have all this destructible terrain that's kind of happening in the background and in the foreground, all at the same time. Like, how do you make sure you kind of don't go over the top with it? Because you could just go endlessly with the amount of ideas that you throw at the player, right? Yeah, planning in the beginning. And basically looking for the bang for the buck. We make this thing. We're going to use this element within the game a certain amount of times. And we had a, a, a stellar design team uh, and a stellar art. I mean, basically everybody in the company, like killer engineers, killer animation, particles, sound. It all came together uh, in a way that we were a well-oiled machine coming out of Prime 3, moving into Donkey Kong Country Returns. And even though it was a fundamentally different genre and a totally different game, um, we we were well-versed in, in how to use the tools and the way that we could do things creatively if we gave each person time and basically let them use their superpowers during production. So it's kind of like we would block things out and even in block out with no art in place, you could feel that this was going to be something special. And when somebody like, you know, when we would take a designed level, we have it fully paced out and it's cool. And then you uh, pass that off to art and then art does a pass over it, and then they light it, then they're able to play off of the things that were in the block in to actually even incorporate other additional elements. And then after it's done, then you do particle and sound and uh, just polish the lighting and, and the color palettes to make sure the background elements don't conflict with the foreground elements and everybody's reviewing and looking at these things. And just basically, we, like one of the fun things was we have these Monday morning meetings where um, we have a theater, and you know we'd play through everything and we're like ah oh, this would be awesome to show in the monday morning meeting and so we would basically have these moments where it's like we'd run through uh stuff and so everybody's watching on the theater screen and people are, eyes are just opening up like oh that's so cool and you know that is infectious and you get this sense of friendly competition like 
man, I want to have something that everybody looks at. And uh, so people are like, they're putting it in their mind. How can I outdo what we showed last week? Or how can I outdo what was shown last month? And then you get to see it go from like a seed of the initial implementation all the way through to a fully polished experience. And the whole company is sitting there looking at it. And that carried through because it was just like, it, it, did create the sense of escalation where we were constantly improving and improving and doing better and then going back and saying like these older things weren't as cool as the stuff that we did now is there anything cool that we could do to kind of inject a little bit of that into some of the earlier stuff and when you have that momentum show up really early on and I, we were like at about three months in like we had a solid understanding of what the game was and then it was escalation from there and we had, you know, again, the, the collaboration uh, and working with, with SPD, Tanabe-san, and, you know, uh, Tanabe-san and Tabata-san's guidance. So they're going through and they're reviewing stuff. And we're having these meetings where, you know, it's like expressing all these ideas, bouncing ideas back and forth, showing off stuff and just having that energy. It, it's like that you can't ask for a better situation. Did Miyamoto ever comment on any of your particular level design that you've that you did um not in particular it was it was more like we would share basically builds of the game that had lots of different levels in and then just kind of uh check out what he was doing and so you've already you know i know that brian walker uh probably talked about the the blowing thing <laughs> but uh it, it's yeah it's so it's it's not down to any one person's work being called out. It's more of the whole package. And so, you know, um, uh, we did get feedback, but the most feedback that I think we got was um, we, we took a trip out um, and kind of presented what our plans were for the game. And that was really fun because, um, you know, just being able to be in a room and make uh, Donkey Kong noises and beat your chest and do ground pound motions and just <laughs> act like a fool under the, but be completely deadpan serious about, you know, what the project is and what you're bringing to it was, was uh, thrilling and fun. And we got a lot of really good feedback from, from him in those meetings. Mm. You mentioned blocking earlier. Is that where the silhouette kind of idea came from? just from early initial prototype stages and then be like, oh, well, how, do, how about we make this a, a design thing? Yeah, so that's from early exploration. So ultimately we would basically have all of the artists while we didn't have full final levels uh, built to be go through the arting process. There was this art exploration period where every artist is bringing to the table ideas for what they would like to see in the game. And that one in particular came from Matt Manchester and, um, you know, inspiration potentially um, Sin City with just having the, the super bright, vibrant colors poking out against the, the black silhouette of the level. Um, and then kind of in conjunction, little seeds of other stuff like Rygar has this sun in the background that just is always in the center of the screen. And as you're running through the levels in Rygar, everything's scrolling, but that sun is always there. And that was also, that felt like a striking visual to play off of the silhouette in the foreground. And then the idea of just basically shadow puppets of like two forms coming together and then all of a sudden they merge to create another distinct shape that you recognize. Those are all ideas that happen naturally in that process. But the original idea was, was really 
uh, really clever and really well done and was just a striking visual that we were attracted to and we knew that we needed to make little special moments in the game that, that had those. And SPD loved it as well. Like they uh, were constantly like, when are we going to see the silhouette stuff? <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you decide where and where to put each level, right? Like, oh, we'll put this level here, like say, um, you know, the the tidal wave level, right? How do you decide on where to implement that specific level in terms of the world map? That really boils down to, again, the meticulous planning process. So the game was planned very early. Like we did this pass where we basically created unique and interesting gimmicks. Uh, gimmicks is the term that we would use internally to describe anything that move, anything that did anything that was recognizable and unique. So a gimmick could be platforms that move up and down, or a gimmick could be uh, um, Rambi, or a gimmick could be um, a the idea of the tidal wave. And so we basically created a perfect progression of how to escalate without it feeling like you, it, you got bored along the way, or it was too even an escalation where there weren't highs and lows, and um, just worked through how to proceed and basically like, okay, we're going to introduce these components here and these components here and these components here. And then it's like, these are the themes of the world. There was one meeting that, um, that I loved where I just basically drew up an island on the whiteboard, uh, kind of like the, the map in uh, DKC, but I just made little themed areas and it was just kind of spur of the moment. And then um, that became part of the conversation for, oh, what does this area do? And so questions started being asked about like, how do all these things function? And again, uh, like I'm not taking credit for for the the planning of of everything, but it's just more that seeds were planted so that we could have kind of a visual reference to be able to go, okay, now on these boards we're gonna pin up all of the mechanics for the progression through the world. So and then just going through and uh, rearranging things as they weren't working, and so once you have a framework of everything that you want to do in a game then it's really easy to go, okay, this is the plan for what we're going to do unless we have something better to put in here or unless we have to make a change in order to like balance things out. And uh, SPD was critical in the process for constantly playing and reviewing the levels and giving us feedback um, at, because of the experience that they have. And then we were constantly bringing new ideas to the table and just kind of like uh, trying to also do the thing where we're uh, surprising them, uh, much like we were trying to outdo each other with various ideas to just, you know, show something that people respond to, like, just give people a moment to like, look at something and, and remember it and go like, that's, that's cool. So were the Kremlings or K rule ever considered, or were you like, no, we're going to start from scratch. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to do the tickies. That's what they're called, aren't they? The tickies. Yeah. Yeah, the, the tikis. Um, so a unique enemy was always the intention of uh, of basically having a new threat and making it feel like it was a different series from the original uh, rare stuff. Uh, there was lots of conversations involved for uh, various things, but I personally feel, and I wasn't involved in um, Tropical Freeze, but I, I feel like the Snowmads were actually uh, more had more character and were were pulled off better than the initial tiki's yeah I, I think just tropical freeze just builds on everything that donkey kong country returns did right yeah Absolutely. so it's a brilliant game 
and it got David Wise back, which was a brilliant move yep. as well. Um, yeah, so, I love David. Oh, yeah, he's amazing, right? So when you moved over to 343 and you worked on Halo, because I find it like Metroid and Halo are kind of two sides of the same coin, right? So say Metroid, like a pillar is exploration and shooting is just something that supports that, whereas Halo, uh, a pillar is shooting and exploration supports that. So what did you take from Metroid going into Halo? Um, unfortunately, very little other than just providing philosophy and and guidance to um, friends on the campaign team. But for the most part, like when I joined, I joined on the multiplayer team. So That's I was right. working on multiplayer and Spartan Ops. Um, but like I had mentioned, I do did at retro i would literally go around to everyone at 343 and just kind of look over people's shoulders see what they're doing that's cool and kind of like throw out little suggestions here and there or nudge things in a certain direction um but ultimately uh the any anything from prime never really had a shot at like the influence of that showing up significantly because it, it, 343 was a huge studio and there were so many people involved in every facet of the game but i was super close with all of the the campaign designers um and artists um but um yeah anything that's there is is surely from whatever individuals were bringing to it and had nothing to do with with my influence You've got a really good philosophy is that, um, which I find very interesting. It's like anytime you work on something, you have to hate it in order to make it better. Yeah. I just think if that's, you can't, if you <laughs> I think, can't I think that's really wrong. interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it, you know, maybe there's a better way of saying it, but for the most part, it's kind of like, if you throw something out there and you're like, it's good enough, you're never going to push yourself. You have to push yourself out of your comfort zone in order to achieve something that is going to like get a reaction because your default is going to be the same as anybody else's default. You know, like it's kind of like the baseline effort to do any idea is get it done. And so if you don't look at that and go like, what can make this better? Every step, if you're literally not swinging for the fences, then you're going to make things that are average. And, you know, for the most part, everyone is different. Everyone has superpowers that, like, if they're not aligned with using their abilities to the best of their ability and all of the facets of everything that they can do on the task that they're on, then you've got, you're using them in the wrong way. And so you want to always align people where their strengths are showcases for the game because everyone benefits. And so, you know, if, again, it's like, if you don't look at something critically, it's, it's like a film, right? It, whenever you're filming things, you've got reels that are massive in terms of every take. It's the editing process that can make that film into a completely different experience that can escalate something that's poor, that's just like C minus to an A plus. And every step of the way is kind of like, you got to push the story and script. You got to push the actors into better performances that they're doing things that are beyond what would be expected. Cause if somebody just comes on stage and they read their lines and they're like, Oh, I am your father. You're not going to care. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's like, you have to, you have to see what's wrong with it. And it's not like hate might be a strong word, but the more you can see what's wrong with it and the more observations you have about how to improve things in any number of categories at the same time, 
So if you can take one swing and get 80% of the way to something incredible, rather than starting with something that's 30% and building it to 40 and then building it up to 50, you have to be able to recognize how to improve it to improve it. And so the, the unicorns of the industry and the killer talent and the, you know, amazing staff that you have like they're bringing what they can observe what they can see is wrong as well as all of these like all of their experience and all of the rules and philosophies that they've picked up along the way to make something more right earlier than than uh not and i think that when you have a bunch of people that are skilled enough to like see something and go like, I'm not, I'm not phoning this in. I'm doing something killer, even though I only have one week to do it. I figure that I can use my experience to make this significantly better in this one week than, you know, this other studio would, or these other individuals would, if they were just putting in the, the smallest amount of effort. So as a creative person though, when, when the project finally f- finishes and it's taken away from you, is there a kind of an element that's like, oh, no, I, I still wanted to do this and that and I didn't get it. No, pro- to- <laughs> no-, <laughs> yeah. no project is ever done. Literally, um, it's, it's kind of like you could noodle on something forever. You have to create either arbitrary boundaries or just the fact that like with game production, you have a deadline. It is only going to be as good as you can get it by that deadline. Sure, you could delay, but that's going to have cost and that's going to have impact on you know people's lives that extend beyond one individual's desires um but yeah a game has to be taken you know uh kicking and screaming from a creator's hands as as a child you know going off into the world you never want you know your baby to go to college and and uh move (laughs) out (laughs) good analogy so that makes me wonder then like when does when do you choose to delay something as opposed to just releasing as is right because it doesn't matter what you do it will never be to a hundred percent you'll never be a hundred percent happy with it so how do you know any how do you know when to do it and when not to do it and obviously you want to avoid crunch where you can as well right yep yeah um it it is realistically um every team has different dynamics no game project is the same so it is educated guesses and observations leading towards the end. So if you have great um, planning ahead of time and you have people that have great intuition and skills guiding the process, like you'll get further along in the earlier stages, which is gonna save you a lot of time in the later stages when you have to just basically polish. So the closer you can get something to complete in less effort, the more time you actually have to refine and polish and distill it down. Every game is hard. There's no such thing as a, there's not a um, one size fits all production methodology or process that you can go through. Uh, Even on the same genre, even on a sequel, every experience is different and requires completely different planning. And you're never, like there's no, there's not a person alive that can predict how other people, everyone on a team is going to bring something together. You have to kind of have a little bit of faith and you have to reassess constantly and you just have to basically plan for what you know you can do with the people you have. 
Um, and if you have budget to expand staff and bring other people in, you never know if that's going to work. So you can't count on things that do not exist. You can try, but all of the, the projects that I've worked on that have, have released in a more polished state or more successful state have just had uh, great people making better estimates and offering better guidance more often uh, in realistic ways yet still trying to just push as much as they can. So moving from uh, studio to studio, have has it been easy for you to adapt to the culture? Because they all have their own ways of doing things internally, right? Probably even from a design aspect or a pitch aspect. So has, yeah, it, has, it, no, been, has I, it been quite seamless for you in order to just make the transition? I thrive in chaos in a little in, in ways like that's that's part of um, one of the things that I can kind of I can see how pieces fit together. And so going to a different studio, it's like absorb as much as you can fit in with whatever is part of that process. Try and help and evolve the process in ways that would benefit the thing going forward. But for the most part, sometimes you just have great chemistry with a team. Sometimes it's stunted and difficult. Um, you know, there's there's all these factors that go into play. It's just not having expectations. If you have expectations, your expectations are not going to be met. Like for the most part, you can walk into a situation that is terrible. Like everyone hates each other. There's no budget. Like there's no support. It is a frustrating project. But if you if that team can pull together and just go like, you know what, like, let's change this. We're going to do something about this and we care and we're going to make the best thing that we can. And you put in the effort, you can make something fantastic. It might not be your favorite process just in terms of the people, you know, or the difficulties. But if you expect it to be perfect or you expect it to even be good, then, you know, you're expect you'll you'll be let down. Like your expectations will get in the way of your ability to actually just do the job, be creative and bring your best to every situation. And you have to just react to whatever it is. So I transition from situation to situation really well. I've got a personality type that kind of allows me to do that. Um, it's not like that for everybody. And you can't expect that for everybody. Like some people will show up at a studio and be like, nope, I'm out and then quit within a week or leave in three months. Some people can't afford to do that. And so they just stick it through and they are miserable. Um, but every process, every studio is different. Studios are only the people that are there. And a lot of times the, the less defensive, the upper management, the leadership of a studio is if they're more basically if they're leads and not bosses, if they're not the type of people to give orders, but they're the type of people to trust their staff to do a great job, support them, take bullets for them. Uh, that is going to be a better studio situation for people to be in than, than to go somewhere where you've got like micromanaging and scrutinization and a bunch of like people that are creating uh, friction in the process and there's a political structure. So it's, it's just kind of like everyone has to make educated guesses and, you know, talk to, talk to people to figure out what the actual, um, studio culture is like before you join. But I think that the easiest thing is just don't have expectations of what it's going to be. And then you'll discover what it is and figure out if it's the right fit for you in the process. I think that's a very good way of looking at things in terms of not having expectations. But how do you deal with someone who say <laughs> does have expectations? 
like if you're collaborating with someone and you're not exactly on the same wavelength i mean that's that's human dynamics it's just social interaction like well you're very um, good at it you seem like an adaptable (laughs) guy so yeah it's it's um so being respectful and honest Mm. so if somebody is is like difficult to work with and it is not within your comfort zone to work with them you can address it with them just by being honest early like you don't want to let something fester to the point where it's it's a a difficult situation that you just you can't like you know that forces you into a situation where you've compromised for so long and and you've empowered this difficult situation to continue um one of my buddies close friend uh anytime a problem comes up he's like let's deal with it and uh and the reasoning is because he says this is the easiest this problem will ever be it only gets harder from here any problem that persists for longer gets more and more difficult to actually compensate for that is you true. start compromising and so it's yeah it's just basically live with integrity treat people the way you want to be treated and uh be be honest and courteous and take care of things when they come up like there's a, there's a proper way to handle any situation and typically it's not you know uh complaining it's addressing and working with it it's like again don't have expectations that just by uh discussing the matter that it's going to be a solution but be open to the idea that you don't have to have your way 100%. No one's going to get that. And people shouldn't have the expectations that it's like, I have to like this. Like there are, there are aspects of any game that you could pick apart where you're like, I don't like that part. Now there are probably uh, a massive percentage of people on staff that don't like that part in particular, but it might've been the right call or the only option that happened on that game in production. And if you just let that eat away at you and you're like, I hate this because this wasn't the thing that I liked, then you will never be happy. That's not life. Like, it's not a realistic expectation. It's not a realistic outcome to, you know, uh, for um, any situation, like the content, the staff, anything. So it really is just like, be fluid. You know, don't don't put yourself in a, a terrible situation. Bring things up when they are problematic. And every studio has its own culture. Every game has its own difficulties. But the more that you're in it with a team to collaborate and kind of amplify things and work through the problems rather than let the problems uh, fester and suffer because of them, the better everyone's going to be. And, you know, mm. that's basically it in a nutshell. Good. That's a good way to um, wrap things up. But I will ask you one more question just before you go. Um, <laughs> <For sure. laughs> uh, so you said that you've had, I think what you told me off air, we were talking a little bit about Metroid Dread and how you have hundreds and thousands of ideas in terms of Metroid. Um, did any of those ideas that you had in a way end up in Dread? Did you ever see anything while you were playing it and be like, oh my gosh, this is an oh, idea yeah. I had? Absolutely. I mean, Dread is a stellar game. Like there are incredible parts of that game that exceeded my expectations. And there are certain things where it's like, um, I, you know, 
it's basically having a desire to have a, it, I think of things more mechanically and thematically, and you can mix and match those things. Uh, I love the execution on, on aspects of that game, um, especially even carrying the story forward into serious spoiler territory, but uh, they handled um, a component that had only been ever like uh, in fans' minds, it hadn't been fully developed or seen in a title so overtly and it was paid off in a way that i felt like it's like yeah that's well done like you know um and i think that there's certain elements that only mercury steam could do and and that could only exist because of the games that had came before and current inspirations that are like oh you know we don't have to do this that way and we can actually make something surprising and different that still feels like metroid through and through but is you know unique surprising and distinct to this game and you will always remember it because of this game in particular and again i don't want to spoil it for people unless we put spoiler tags in the very beginning like don't listen but um yeah yeah absolutely dread was filled with with uh moments that were were very interesting super polished and cool that yeah i loved it's cool because you you didn't actually help in the design aspect so you got to appreciate it as a player right yeah yeah that's always the best yeah like, you know in a certain regard this is the you know maybe the the best way to end this off when i look at most games when i play everything i cannot separate myself from being an artist or a designer or a developer. Like I'm always looking at how this is done, what's done here. And in a certain regard, uh, that can get in the way of just your enjoyment um, mm. of entertainment. And this game brought me back to basically just experiencing the game as a fan. It felt like um, leaving off from Fusion and going straight into this as a continuation from Super Metroid and Fusion and being a legit real sequel to Metroid. And I am not going to pick it apart as a developer. I'm in for the ride. And it made me feel that childlike enthusiasm of just like going through the experience and the game is what it is. I don't have expectations. Just take me along. And by the end, I look back on it and I was fully satisfied and excited for the potential future. Brilliant way to end off. So um, if anyone wants to keep up to date with what you're doing, where's the best place for them to go? I keep an absolute low profile online. <laughs> uh, so basically Twitter is probably the only way that you'll see anything other than just random piecemeal things. So uh, I believe it's just at Kind and Pearson on Twitter. Cool. Um, that's it. Oh, and I do want to mention that you do have a Metroidvania document, which is a brilliant document that I highly encourage anyone to read who's into Metroidvania or even game design. Um, it's a yeah, brilliant I, document. I, <laughs> I appreciate that. I wish that I'd gotten a chance to finish it. I do kind of like the fact that I left it a little open-ended at the end. So, because, you know, ultimately people know what's best for their game and people aren't going to break the rules if they're following rules too closely. And so it's a good just uh, introduction to the concepts of how to plan a Metroid or a Metroidvania, um, how to do ability progression and how to do basically the fundamental loop of how to reinforce a concept and express it and then uh, pay it off, um, but not covering the details of the exact, like how to 
pace out your progression. So it's there, it's incomplete, but um, I've, I've received tons of mail throughout the years from a bunch of people that were very appreciative uh, who have worked on a lot of Metroidvanias that I personally love as well. So um, I'm glad I did it. Um, I hope that it's provided value to the people that found it. And uh, look it up if you ever want to take on the difficult task of planning a game like this. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, that's the uh, show, everyone. Make sure you share, like, and subscribe. And um, until next time, stay safe. Thanks.